We're in the midst of a 10-part uh, series on redeeming sex and sexuality. This is the seventh week in that series. We've talked about a number of different topics on this. Um, shame, lust, the value, biblical description of the value of singleness. But we, we started off back at the beginning of this in, in Genesis 1 and 2, and then a number of scriptures that follow off on those to establish the foundation, the, the important things that we need to understand about God's design for sex. And going back to Genesis chapter 1, it's very clear that the foundation begins with God creating human beings in his image. That is what gives value and dignity to human life is God's creative work in his image and likeness. And then it says he differentiated them as male and female and commanded them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then chapter two of Genesis goes on to elaborate on that and explain that that happens within a one man, one woman, one flesh covenant relationship. And that's what's seen throughout the scriptures. That, that foundation is what's built on and applied and taught and modeled all throughout the scriptures as it speaks about issues of sexuality and marriage. It is what Jesus affirmed in Matthew chapter 19 when he is confronted by opponents who are questioning him about the matter of divorce. He quotes from Genesis 1 and 2 and affirms these foundational truths. He says in, in Matthew 19, 4 through 6, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Jesus, it's sometimes pointed out, does not speak to all sorts of nuances of the, the matters of sex and sexuality that we talk about today. He doesn't specifically mention homosexuality, for instance, at least as recorded in the gospels, but he does speak often on matters of sexual immorality, and he also speaks unambiguously about affirming God's design for sex being within the bounds of marriage as established in the book of Genesis. That foundation is crucial, especially so as we move through these next couple of weeks, because we're talking in particular about deviating from what God's design is. We will not rightly understand and uh, apply the truth of God's word to things like adultery and fornication and homosexuality and transgenderism if we don't understand the biblical foundation, understanding what God designed in marriage and designing sex to be as part of that and what Jesus affirms and what's taught throughout scripture. And so I wanna start this morning, talk for just a few minutes on adultery. I am not gonna spend a, a great deal of time on adultery mainly for two reasons. One, within the body of Christ, there is very little argument that says adultery somehow is biblical. I think we're all pretty clear that adultery it is, is spelled out in Scripture, that it is wrong. In fact, we can go back to the seventh commandment, and that's the other reason I'm, I'm not going to spend a great deal of time this morning. We preached on it when we went through the Ten Commandments back in the fall of, of 2019. The seventh commandment, Exodus 20:14, forbids adultery. And so just to be Clear about definitions, adultery is sex by a married man with someone other than his wife or a married woman by someone with someone other than her husband. Adultery betrays and shatters the one flesh relationship. It, it, it attacks at the very covenant, the core of the covenant that is between that husband and wife. In fact, the, the, the idea of adultery is, is so troubling, so disturbing for, for most of us that it's the same thing God uses to give us imagery to understand spiritual betrayal. When the, the nation of Israel, when people who are pledged to be devoted to him and to follow after him, turn toward idols and begin worshiping false gods, 
There's the language that he uses is adultery to help us get the sense of what this betrayal looks like in terms of spiritual adultery. I mentioned Jesus's words before from Matthew 19, a little later in that same passage in verse 9, when he's speaking about the unbreakable nature of marriage, he, he does give this exception in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9. He says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Preview of coming attractions, we'll talk at the, the last week, on the 10th week, about marriage and divorce and, and remarriage. And so we'll, we'll come back here and, and deal with this a little bit more. But I, I just want you to see this point is Jesus is prohibiting divorce for all of the common reasons that, that made it so prevalent in the first century. As we've said before, it was largely a male oriented sort of act. The husband was the one who would give the certificate of divorce to his wife for a variety of reasons. And Jesus is, is dismissing that and is in fact saying, you divorce your wife and you go marry another. You are committing adultery with one exception, and that is for sexual immorality. As he says here, except for porneia, sexual immorality. The nature of that exception is that if a, a married person is sexually unfaithful to his or her spouse, that permits divorce, doesn't command divorce, but it allows it by the words of Jesus there in Matthew chapter 19 because of what it does to the covenant of marriage, to how it undermines and defiles that covenant. To splinter that one flesh relationship is serious sin before God, and we should see it as such. Jesus, even as he's affirming the one flesh nature of the covenant, is at the same time saying that any sexual intimacy which violates the bond of marriage is sinful. All right, let, let me shift. We'll talk just a little bit about what the Bible says about fornication. The dictionary would define fornication as sexual relations between two people who are not married. It's not a word that we are accustomed to using in everyday language, fornication. It's, it's largely been retired by our culture and replaced with slang euphemisms that, that are largely intended to sort of whitewash any connotations of sin related to it. But the, the Greek word behind most of the translations of, of fornication that you might have in your English text, again, is porneia, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago. It's sexual sin. In the first century, that word was understood to mean that which was outside of the, the bonds of marriage. And so it was a, a range of activities. It could include adultery, but there are occasions in the New Testament where it's clear that the writer is distinguishing between adultery and porneia, and that's where we get this idea of fornication. So again, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, where we're going to spend a good bit of time this morning, I just want you to see the, the distinction here. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, New American Standard there would say fornicators, as, as again a way of helping us to distinguish the, the porneia, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. And so there's some sense, and we'll come back to the last part of that verse in just a few minutes when we talk about the, this, the practice of homosexuality as, as the wording is here. But, but clearly what he's saying in 1 Corinthians 6.9 is there are, there's also this category of sin that is beyond adultery, that is other kinds, other forms of sexual sin. Fornication, again, is the, the word we might commonly use. Last summer, Pew Research published an outcome of a survey on this. The headline said, half of U.S. Christians say casual sex between consenting adults is sometimes or always acceptable. Now, the survey takes the very 
bare minimum definition for casual sex. It's defined as, quote, sex between consenting adults who are not in a committed romantic relationship. And respondents could reply to that and say, it's either always acceptable, sometimes acceptable, rarely acceptable, or never acceptable. Pew reports that 62% of Catholics, first of all, said casual sex is always or sometimes acceptable. That is, nearly two-thirds of those who would profess to be Roman Catholics would, would say that that's acceptable in some way. And I'll just say this as an aside to our, our larger discussion. That is a clear consequence of elevating human authority to parallel biblical authority. When you begin to vest authority in the church that is equivalent to that of the Bible, then people are, are much easier for them to say, well, they got this wrong. Those guys got this wrong, those church leaders. And, and, and that's why you end up with numbers like this that say, well, this practice is acceptable. But here's, here's where the numbers go on and, and impinge on us a little bit. 54% of mainline Protestants and 36% of evangelical Protestants also said casual sex is always or sometimes acceptable. And remember, this is consenting adults not in a committed relationship. So more than a third of those who would call themselves evangelical say it's acceptable for consenting adults to have sex even if they're not in a committed relationship. When the question turned to those who are unmarried but are in some form of committed relationship, not, not married again, but in a relationship, evangelical Protestant support jumped to 46%. That's nearly half. Now, granted, we should always be a little skeptical when we see words like evangelical and, and what people think of, but I'll suggest this to you. If, if these numbers are even remotely close, We've got some struggles here in terms of what Scripture says, of what God's Word says about where sex is to take place within the bonds of marriage. And we are broadly here, based on these numbers, seeing why the culture, even within Christianity, is saying, well, we're not married, but we're really committed to each other, or we're engaged or something, and therefore it's okay. I, I want to challenge you, not based on my opinion, but based on Scripture. First Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8, says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is your growth as a believer, your, your growing Christ-likeness. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from porneia, from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things for as we told you before hand and solemnly warned you for God has not called us for impurity but in holiness therefore whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you the Bible is unambiguous about sex outside of marriage when it uses words like abstain it's the same word that would be used in, in nautical terminology to describe a ship that is getting dangerously close to the coast and is about to shipwreck by abstain, by that Greek word. It has the idea of, of reversing course, of changing course and not continuing in that direction. Same kind of language in 1 Corinthians 6, if we read on down to verse 18, says flee sexual immorality, not explore it, not try to decide what's appropriate and what's not, but rather run from that, which is sexual activity outside of marriage. Because, he gives us the incentive here, because pursuing holiness is our calling as believers in Jesus Christ. We are always called 
to look increasingly like Christ. And so that's why holiness must mark us, distinctiveness, as people who follow after the Lord. And the other idea, though, that he brings in here is the the warning that sexual sin usually always involves someone else. In verse 6, he speaks about transgressing uh, against a brother, whether it's somebody who you are consenting with or it is a person who is the object of your lust. The point of verse 6 is when we sin, we not only are rejecting what God has said, but we are overstepping bounds with another person. That's the idea of transgression. It is to to violate in some way, to climb over the fence. And so what he's warning there is don't exploit someone else. Don't even willingly hold hands with someone else while the two of you together climb over a wall that God has established in place to say this, these are the boundaries. This is where sex belongs. Don't do that. We need to pause here when, when, we're, when we're talking, especially on the, the do nots. We need to pause to reflect on how radical New Testament teaching is on sex, at, at, in particular in, in the first century. Because at this point in time, as we've talked about before, for males in the first century, sex was largely a, a commodity. It was something that could be achieved through slaves, through prostitutes. Um, there were very few restraints except for the prohibition against taking another man's wife. There were people who argued against this, but it was from a secular philosophy. It was largely what we would call Stoics. Those who say, no, no pleasures, no delights, just reason and thinking. And if you, you get distracted by all of this pleasure stuff, then you get distracted from, from doing the tasks that you're called to. And so it's kind of this rigid self-denial. The New Testament comes, and Jesus and Paul speak into this and chart a course that is well between rigid self-denial and full license to do whatever one pleases. And God's word now teaches that by God's design, sex is good for both the husband and the wife. It is desirable. It has an appropriate place where it is to be enjoyed, where it is for the purpose of pleasure, where it is for the purpose of procreation, where it allows a husband and a wife to serve one another. And so into this first century sort of male-oriented world, it now says sex should be good for husband and wife. It should be enjoyed by both, and there should be mutual giving and receiving. That's one one writer who's looked back at some of the history of this says the credit for the first sexual revolution should be given to Christianity and and what the the New Testament teaches in terms of the first century in in opposing a culture that encouraged sex for men, young, old, married or or not, and speaking into that. I mean, you go back to the first century and one of the philosophers, Plutarch, was advising wives not to be angry at your husbands for having sex with a slave or a prostitute, that wives were for purposes of legitimate offspring. And Jesus and Paul come and say, no, actually this is to be enjoyed and, and sacred because your body now is a dwelling place of the living God. And so how you function in marriage, how you nurture that oneness and the sexual relations you have in marriage are all part of being a temple of God's spirit. And it is, it, it is a, a sacred act between believers. To violate that is a form of idolatry. It is saying my desires, fulfilling my desires are what matters most, and that is pure and simple idolatry. 
That's why the New Testament continues to affirm where sex belongs. Sex in a non-marital relationship, committed or, or otherwise, basically says my, my pleasure is more important than God's design. My unwillingness to wait matters more than God's call to discipline and to patience and to waiting on his good plan. Um, I, I know better about this love and feeling stuff than my creator who designed me. That, that's essentially what that's arguing. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. That's where I'm going to settle in for the rest of our time. Uh, if you want to turn there, scroll there, 1 Corinthians 6. We've seen that God clearly condemns adultery and fornication. I want to take the rest of our time this morning to consider homosexuality. There was another Pew survey. So it was a different group of people, not the same 36%, found that a different group, 36% of evangelical Protestants believe homosexuality should be accepted. Amongst a broader category of people who would call themselves Christian, 54% say homosexuality should be accepted. These next two statistics you'll think I'm just throwing out to sort of knock these people. I'm not. This is really important, I, th I think. Of that group, 54% saying homosexuality should be accepted. Of that group, when asked how often they participate in prayer, Bible study, or some other religious education, 60%, 60, said seldom or never. And when asked their source of guidance for right and wrong, half, 50%, said common sense. Now, this is why that matters. As believers in Jesus Christ, there are secondary issues. There are issues that theologians would say, these are not the primary ones. These are the ones that we can have some discussion over and some disagreement over, over mode of baptism, immersion, or, or, or other forms of baptism that genuine believers in Jesus Christ can have differences about. The um, spiritual gifts, some, whether some cease or some continue, we have discussions about that, and we have some disagreements about that within the evangelical community. The order of end times events. Secondary issues for which we will one day stand in heaven and realize, oh, you were right and I was wrong, or vice versa on, on those things. I don't even know if in heaven we're going to think in that kind of term of right and wrong at that point. We're just going to glorify God for his great plan and realize we probably didn't fully grasp it all on this side. But then there are primary issues. There are primary issues about God and man, and sin, and the cross that bear on people's eternity, that bear on people's hope in Christ. And the gospel speaks to sin and repentance. And so where, where we are speaking on sin, we need to say what God's word says. Where God's word is unambiguous, we need to be lovingly unambiguous and clear about these things, lest we deceive ourselves or deceive others. And so if, you, if you're wrestling with the issue of homosexuality and, and come to the place of saying after, after 2,000 years of church history, the church, it, we're, we're now realizing that the church for all these years got it wrong and shouldn't have been calling homosexuality sin because these new experts have found new meaning in Romans and Leviticus and 1 Timothy and 1 Corinthians, and, and, and that this new understanding, this revisionist point of view, says practicing homosexuality is not sinning, if you're, you're going to come to that conclusion, then you best have studied God's word carefully. If you're going to stand on authority on this, I would submit this to you over common sense. That's why I made the point from the, the, the survey before that half are saying, well, I'm trying to decide right and wrong. I just look at what common sense says. That's, that is that's what the world often does. 
As believers in Jesus Christ, we are supposed to be uniquely committed to what the truths of this book teach. Because one of the most unloving things we can do is to be wrong about sin. It is to either overstep bounds that we shouldn't and say more and become legalistic or to understate what the word says. We need to speak truth. Now listen, it's not unprecedented for the church to struggle on interpretations. You only need to go back a few centuries ago to find large swaths of professing believers in Jesus Christ defending the evils of slavery with Bible verses. Praise God, there were also believers who were speaking from the scriptures and saying, no, this is, this is wrong. But, but I, I say that to say it's not unprecedented. Wrong biblical interpretation has happened before. But if the Bible says that people who practice certain behaviors are not going to inherit the kingdom of God, and yet we somehow come around and tell them that, no, actually, those behaviors are acceptable. That is not loving. That is, that is deceiving to people. This past week, Samuel Say, who's a Christian blogger, I, I've mentioned him in the sermon notes. I would uh, encourage you to, to look at his blog. I think it's slowtowrite.com. Samuel wrote this, God is not ashamed of the gospel. He isn't embarrassed by his word. He isn't anxious about telling people good things that might offend them. God is not afraid to tell the truth about sexual sin. God is not tempted to lie about pornography, fornication, adultery, and especially homosexuality and transgenderism. He loves sinners too much for that. And so should we. We need to love people enough to both know the truth and speak the truth. And so 1 Corinthians 6, let me read again verse 9, and this time we'll go 9 through 10. And then we'll take it apart just a little bit more. Verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Right, so you've got a list of practices. We tend to call these vice lists in the New Testament. There's a number of them that, that sort of list these off. And they are these gracious warnings to say this is not where we should be as believers in Jesus Christ. These are the patterns of the world. And it starts with that word porneia, the broad term for sexual sin. Then it identifies very specifically adulterers. And then at the end of verse 9 is two categories. We, we lose this just a little bit in the ESV when it says, nor men who practice homosexuality. It's two different categories, groups of people in, in the Greek. It's nor malakoi, nor arsenikotai. Malakoi or arsenikotai. Now, bear with me on, on why I spend a few minutes on, on thinking about Greek here for just a moment. Because if you, if you study this, if you go online at least, and you look... For arguments about the Bible and homosexuality, you will inevitably see these words and discussion of these words and, and the idea that these words are either vague or they mean very specific, very narrow practices and they have nothing to do with what today would be considered homosexual practice. So let's, let's just take these words and think about them for just a moment. Arsenikotai. It's a compound word. And the reason that it's a difficult Greek word is it, it, it's not been found in language prior to Paul using it in 1 Corinthians here and then in 1 Timothy chapter 1. So there's a sense in which Paul is either creating this compound word or it was being used in, in circles at that time, which is 
perhaps likely, and just not in the writing of the philosophers that, that is still available these days. But it's a simple compound word, arson, male. It's the uh, same word that Jesus uses in Matthew 19.4 when he quotes Genesis, that God created them male and female. He uses this Greek word, arson. It, it, it doesn't categorize age. Adult male, younger male, could even apply in some instances to a male animal. The idea is this is the category of male, all right? Kotai is a bed or a place of rest. It, it's where guys like me like to go on Sunday afternoons, you know, for like my afternoon nap. You go and lie down, you rest. That, that's simply what the word means. Hebrews 13.4 speaks of the, the marriage bed not being defiled, and it's that word, that bed. Our senakotai then, is a compound of those two that means one who beds men, a, a better of man, who goes to bed with man, and it's taken, as we're gonna see from the euphemistic speaking in, in Leviticus, that's very clearly applying to sexual relations. It, it, and it is the idea of men having sex, man going to bed, and, and I'll show you where that comes from in just a moment from Leviticus. Why doesn't Paul use something else? Well, because they don't have a, a single common word in the Greek as we do at, at that point in time that would have just clearly said general homosexual practice. When the philosophers talked about this, they largely used for forms of eros or erotica eros, the god of passion, the god of desire. And so you, you will see language from Plato and others that will speak in terms of homo eros or homo erotica, same sort of passion, same sort of, uh, of that, that form of love, if you will. I, I would say to you, We've, we've talked about Greek and, and the word for love. There's several words that the New Testament uses, agape and phileo, brotherly love, and love of God for his people, that, that sort of self-giving love. Eros is not one you find in the New Testament. And, and that's because it doesn't define love as we would biblically. It's more about passion. It, it's more about the stuff that we, you, you, you remember from the, the popular songs back in the day about, you know, you laid eyes on that person, and next thing you know, you were wrapped up in each other in this steamy passion. That's the idea of eros. And so that's what the language would have spoken to back at that point in time. Paul uses this word in, instead, arsenikotai, that's this compound that very specifically replicates the language of the Old Testament law prohibition on same-sex practice. It's just simply the Old Testament Hebrew translated into Greek. The Greek translation of the Old Testament was called the Septuagint. It happens in the period between the Old and the New Testament. Jewish scholars wanting to make the Old Testament available to the Greek-speaking world take the Hebrew Old Testament, translate it into Greek, and that's what's widely read then by Gentile believers in the early churches as they want to read Genesis and Exodus and so on. They're reading from the Septuagint. So let me show you two verses, first from the ESV and then from the Septuagint, so you can understand where Paul gets our Senecotai. Leviticus 18.22 says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Leviticus 20.13, If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. Pause there. I'm not going to spend a, a great deal of time in Leviticus because I understand that there are different points where people will pick and say, well, if you're going to take this, then you've got to take the dietary stuff and the clothing stuff and all of these different things. I just, just want you to see those two verses. And now here's in the Septuagint, and this is just transliterating the, 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 the Greek and English. And with a male, arsenos is the word, you shall not lie in bed, coiten, as with a woman, for it is an abomination. Or, and who, if lies with a male, arsenos, in bed, coiten, as with a woman, an abomination they have committed, both of them. Both 
verses are clear in God's law. They are unambiguous in terms of the practice that, that God is describing here. They both fall in what's called the holiness code, this section of Leviticus that deals with God calling man to, to be holy, to be different. And in Leviticus 18 in particular, it's a list of forbidden sexual practices, a lot of it dealing with, with incest in that passage and adultery. Point being, in both passages, these two verses that we've just read, there's no qualifiers. There's no, this, this means some sort of form of this. It simply says, if a man lies with a man as if he is lying with a woman, it is an abomination. And then verse, uh, chapter 20 elaborates and says it is an abomination for both. There were Middle Eastern laws at the time, even in, during the Old Testament time, that um, prosecuted the assailant in, in homosexual rape, but that's, that's not what's in view here. It's simply speaking of a man lying with a man. And in both cases, the practice is called an abomination. There's six uses of abomination uh, in Leviticus. Two of them are, are, are these two right here. Caution. Don't overstate that. Don't understate that. There's a lot of practices in the Old Testament that are described as abomination. But just because there are doesn't mean we should water down the meaning of the fact that what it means is God God's given judgment on this. He detests this. He finds this to be abhorrent. It is against his design. So you have the Old Testament law prohibiting the practice of men having sexual relations with other men as they would with a woman, but significantly for our understanding of 1 Corinthians 6.9, and we're now reading through this list and trying to decipher what does he mean when he comes up with our Senecotai, there is a very clear word connection from Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, as the, the Greek speakers of that day are reading the Old Testament, they now see, ah, Arsene Kotai, I see what he means by this. This has already been spelled out and he's now using the same language. If Paul wanted to use God's language on this sin in a way that Christian readers of the Greek Old Testament would have understood, he could not have been more clear than to take the language of the old and form it into a word and say, this is what is prohibited. The other word in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 is malakoi. Again, ESV says, translates this as men who practice homosexuality. And it says, um, uses the two categories, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. And so there's that malakoi, effeminate. That's closer in terms of using two different categories. Malakoi is something soft soft garment even, um, just has the idea of something that's soft in some way. There are arguments about what that means in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. What does he mean by idolaters, adulterers, malakoi, arsenikotai? What, what does that malakoi mean? And it ranges from people who will say, well, it's talking about male prostitutes to people who, to, to men who were um, very effeminate or, or, or men who lived very soft and decadent lives. They weren't sort of rugged Roman Empire sort of macho guys. And so it's, it's, it's calling that group out. What is always important for us as we study God's word and we get to this kind of stuff where we're trying to sort through what does this mean is, is look at the context. The context is a very clear list. Idolaters, adulterers, malakoi, homosexuals. It is beyond a stretch at this point to say, well, that has something to do then with God condemning those who live a soft or decadent life. It, it, it's clearly talking about some category of sexual sin alongside adultery and, and same-sex practice. First century writer outside scripture, Jewish philosopher Philo, used Malachi to speak of the so-called 
passive partner in homosexual relations. I want to delve way into all of this, more than you, the too much information sort of stuff. I'll, I'll just a little bit just to help. Roman culture, first century, not generally homosexual practice as we would see it today of, of two sort of peers in a mutual relationship. It was typically a one-way relationship with one aggressor taking advantage of a weaker one and, and, and not necessarily an assault kind of situation. Generally, there was consent, but it was generally one and one, not, not a, a, a mutual sort of relationship. All of that to say what Paul has in mind here is replicating Leviticus 20.13, where he says specifically the actions of both men are an abomination. The actions of both parties in this are, are guilty before God. Both are participating in a sexual act that God forbids. Now, let me just deal with one last issue that often comes up in this, and I understand there's more, that's why Offered if you want. There's more to read at the end of the notes. You can pick up some other books that, that will go into much more detail. Um, but one last matter, and that's pederasty, which was men taking sexual advantage of younger men or boys, teenage boys. Um, consequently, a lot of writers will say that's, that's what the New Testament's speaking about. That's what Paul is condemning at this point. It's not forbidding same-sex activity in general. It's just men assaulting boys. Certainly that is sinful and that is evil, but there was a clearly well-established word, our pederasty comes from the Greek word that sounds almost exactly like that. There was a clear and well-established word that Paul could have used. And had Paul not wanted us 2,000 years later to wrestle with this and somehow inject into this the idea that this was younger people, could have used a word for child, could have used a word for boy. There were very clear, unambiguous language that he could have used. And instead what he's doing is is describing the two sides, the two partners, if you will, in a same-sex relationship when he uses these two words, malakoi and arsenikotai. If you turn over to Romans 1, I just want to look at one last passage, and this is maybe one of the central arguments you'll hear on the topic of the New Testament and homosexuality. Romans 1 and verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Key question that comes up is what, what does this mean, exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature? What's he describing there? Again, context is critical, not only because we believe that as Christians, but because verse 26 starts, for this reason, God did this. So, so we know he's, he's pointing us back to what he's just written. And the context here in Romans 1 has a lot to do with God's created order. Starting back in, in verse 19 of Romans chapter 1, the emphasis here is on how man can acquire knowledge of God from creation. How as we look at the created order, it testifies loudly to the existence of God. And therefore, verse 20 says, God's power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. So, so we're into this creation mode here. God, God calling back and saying that, that God is evident in creation. Verse 23, creation still in the context. It says, man exchanges 
the worship of the immortal, that is the uncreated God, exchanges the worship of him for the worship of images that reflect the creatures God has made. Again, contrasting, creation, uh, creator and creation. Verse 24 and 25, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. All, during, all throughout this passage, Paul is bringing back the notion, reminding us of the notion of God's design at creation. This is what God has done. This is the order in which he established things. And if we recall, this is where the foundational stuff matters. In Genesis, he made them male and female after his image, gave them dominion over the rest of creation. What Romans is showing us is how man, by nature, by sinful rebellion, seeks to overturn God's design. Here's God's created order. Here's man doing what man chooses to do instead in rejecting the creator and turning the creation into idols, worshiping the created things. And that, that same context carries right into verses 26 and 27. Then when he says that they've exchanged the natural order for things that are not, by, not natural, not by nature. When he speaks here of men and women in 26 and 27, he doesn't use the the ordinary Greek words for men, for a man or a woman, gunai or anthropos, anthropos man, gunai woman, doesn't use those terms. He uses the broader generic terms to say male and female. And so it's arsen and thalos. The, the point being that the language here in Romans is mirroring the language in Genesis. And so Romans 1, 26 and 27 mirrors Genesis 1, 26 and 27, in saying, here is God's design in creating humans after his image, differentiating them male and female. And then, of course, Genesis 2, describing how then they come together in a one flesh relationship. This is God's creation now in Romans under attack. They are defying the natural order means they are now seeking to overturn what God designed at creation, to do that which is contrary to, to what he has ordered. And, and so that, that defying of God's order is, is not only in man's embrace of idolatry, worshiping creature instead of creator, it's also in man's penchant for defying God's good plan for sex and, and, and turning that on its head as well and saying, I, I choose to do what I want to do. And, and same-sex practice is contrary to what God designed and commanded at creation. Now, if you're asking, so what, that's good. That's the time for the so what question. Here's why this matters. Romans 1 is the entryway into, into one of the greatest discourses on the gospel of Jesus Christ, on, on spelling out the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Romans 1, 2, 3, all take us through the gateway of sin, understanding man's rebellion understanding that man has taken all of the goodness of God and the good creation of God and has turned his order upside down and he has done it willingly and, and, and defies God, right? That, that's where Romans 1, 2, and 3 goes to the point that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And, and what those chapters are doing are making the case for the gospel. And when we read those opening chapters, we come to them and say, I need help. 
I'm broken like this. This is me. I've, I've defied God. And thus the need for a gospel of grace that Paul then proclaims in the remaining chapters of Romans that says that God saves sinners, sinners who have rejected his order, who have defied his nature in, in creation. And God is now providing a way to be made right. That's why this speaks to all of us. We all have stood. If, even if you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, you have stood in that place of embracing the creation over the creator and have some point or another shook your fist at God and, and done your own thing and fulfilled your own desires and you would remain in your sin apart from him if it were not for the saving grace of God to rescue us. That's why... It is so important as Bible-believing Christians that we speak the truth about sin. Not so that we can be finger pointers, better than thou people, people who are just constantly out there slamming. It is because they need to know the truth that, that we are speaking to them of a Savior who offers forgiveness and life and hope. And the sin that you're in is real, same place. I, I know it from, not just because it says it here, but from my own existence. And, and we need to speak truth. And yet, the, the church is being challenged with this false narrative being foisted on us that if you really want to love people, you have to affirm them and even celebrate their rejection of God's order and design. That is not what Scripture is calling us to do. That, that's shameful on our part. Because the consequences of that is to take passages like we've talked about, 1 Corinthians 6, Romans 1, 1 Timothy 1 uses the, the, the same language, and, and, and even back to Leviticus. These are all compassionate warnings. What, what, what Scripture's saying is if you continue to do these things, idolatry, adultery, sexual immorality, homosexuality, if you continue in this and refuse to repent and turn to Jesus Christ and believe that he died for your sin and rose again to defeat sin and death. If you don't turn to him, you will remain under the judgment of God. And that's why scripture urges us to understand sin for what it is. In fact, Romans 1 goes on to say, and we won't read it all, but I encourage you to spend some time in it even this afternoon. It goes on to say that one of God's ways of judging mankind is to ultimately remove the restraining influence over man's sinful inclinations and to give man over to his own desires. It is God, in his judgment, removing that restraining influence of the Holy Spirit that is meant to bring conviction of sin to people and, and in the process then permitting man to delve further and further into his own rebellion as that, that divine restraining influence is pulled back, man becomes bolder in his sin. To the point that verse 32 of Romans 1 says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That should resonate with us because that's, that's where our culture is at right now in, in terms of saying, not just look the other way, but approve. We, we are facing numerous temptations to rethink and rewrite what God's word says about sexual sin. From the, I can do what I want, or I, we're gonna get married at some point, to what, what the, the, the new trend of polyamory, we can, you know, another form of polygamy, that, that all of this is, is just out there and I can do what I want to, to same-sex behavior. And we are being urged to support those who want to live together, who want to have sex outside of marriage or multiple partners or same-sex behavior. And it's almost as if we would foolishly believe, as, as Samuel Say said in that, that blog, that, that if we just affirm people, that's how we love them. 
if we just affirm them, that, that, that that's, that's actually, as he argues in his blog, we're, we're loving them even more than God does. And it's the exact opposite. God is loving them to call them to truth and to, to, to speak truth to them. That's what you and I are called to do, is to speak the truth with grace and compassion, not compromising. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness for liars and idolaters and gossips and slanderers and haters and sexual sinners and, and all who have lived in defiance of God's truth, but we, we need to speak God's truth and warn those who persist in such patterns. There is hope. Jesus Christ died on the cross to provide forgiveness of sins, and he will forgive. And that is the great news that we are called to proclaim. That's why 1 Corinthians 6, I didn't read all the way down through verse 11, but if you look through verse 11, he, he's not giving that list as just a poke you in the eye sort of thing. This is, this is you know, what you're doing. He speaks to the Corinthians, and he's not trying to tick off a, a list here that would just leave them feeling condemned and hopeless. He goes on and in verse 11 says, but as for you... You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the believers in Corinth live in one of the most sexually broken cultures of their time. And God is saying, for you, there is hope in Christ. It, it, if you, no matter how far you were into your lying or your idolatry or your sexual sin, whatever it was, there is hope to be washed and set apart and justified in the Lord Jesus Christ, to come to that place of 1 Corinthians 6, 11 saying, such were some of you, but you now belong to the King. God knows what you've come from and by his grace and his spirit and his son's death in your place, he has come to wash you and to set you free. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the clarity with which it speaks. Thank you that as I, I think for all of us here, there's, there's some level at which this, this pokes, this convicts, this challenges our thought life, our, our, our lives that we, we think sometimes are in secret or in private. Lord, you have come to us as a holy God, distinct, separate from sin. And yet, Lord Jesus is the one who, on the cross, took in full measure in your body the punishment that was due for our lust, our secret sins, our dark rebellion, all of that. For those who are trusting in Christ was put on the Savior that we might, in turn, receive redemption and forgiveness. Father, I ask, as, as we pray now, that if there's anybody listening to this that is struggling in these areas, and Lord, we all struggle at different levels on this, but anyone who's feeling like it, this is just, this is a hopeless situation, that the desires of their heart now seem so off course from what they see in Scripture, and, and maybe their past or their thoughts seem to condemn them and they feel like there is no hope. Lord, I pray that your spirit would open their eyes to see the arms of a savior who longs to embrace them, longs to receive them into his kingdom. Lord, that there is forgiveness for all sinners, all forms of sinners. And if they will come to you, if they will turn and trust in Jesus Christ and believe that he died on the cross and rose again, that there is life and hope and forgiveness and everlasting peace 
in the presence of God. Lord, we as a body of believers being tested and tried in our beliefs on these things and being so in our flesh, drawn toward comfort and ease and not wishing to stir up controversy. Lord, we need your help. We need your spirit to help us balance truth and love. That we would love people around us desperately, wanting them to know Christ, wanting them to see the truths of the gospel, but also unafraid to speak the truth to them about sin and a Savior who has come to provide forgiveness. So give us boldness, give us compassion, continue to remind us, as you have from your word today, that we do not stand where we are because we somehow got it got smarter, figured it out, are better people. We are here by your grace. You have rescued us from this, these same all-consuming lusts and passions. And Lord, even now as believers, we, we still long for that day when, when we will stand in the presence of Christ, fully glorified, no longer in these bodies of flesh that, that are so subject to, to temptation and weakness, Lord, we long for that day and pray that until that day comes, that you would, by your spirit, convict us, challenge us, enable us to walk in holiness, that we might live distinct lives of following after Jesus Christ, and that people would see him through us. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.